Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't we go ahead and begin? Uh, I'm going to try to turn you loose at a quarter after, so you can go catch your seats. Well, Father, we love you. So grateful for today, recognizing that this is, in fact, a very, very special day. As we look to history and look to the reality of the resurrection. And uh, so, Lord, we want to receive you a warm and welcome here in our midst. Not only are you abiding inside of us, but we want your glory to resound and flow freely in our thinking, in our perception of reality and truth, and also in the way that we love and express love. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for one another. Thank you for Grace Church. And thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. And then he says something that's very peculiar. If, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, we're going to camp out on this a few moments before I get into the rest of it, because this is uh, an example of some verses that sometimes hold a pretty serious question mark to us. So what in the world was he meaning by that? By which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, um, what I hope to do t- this morning is help you understand the necessity of the resurrection, the reality and the validity of it. Secondly... That you, um, uh, when you come to problem verses, so-called problem verses, problem verses to you, there's never a problem with the verse. It's just a problem with us individually. When you come to a place like that where there are question marks, uh, how do you proceed? You know, how do you come to a place of understanding or comprehension of it? And I think I can give you some tools to help you do that. Um, okay, so when Paul said, unless you believed in vain, let's just take that portion of it. What did Paul mean by that when he said that? Well, there are two questions that have to be asked when interpreting this particular scripture, and oftentimes any scripture, but let's, let's focus on this one. The first question I would ask is, is the emphasis here on this verse, is the emphasis here on the one believing? Is that what Paul is talking about? Is the emphasis on the one who is doing the believing? Or is the emphasis on the substance that's to be believed? Is the emphasis on the believer... Or is it on the substance that is to be believed, right? Two very different approaches to understanding what Paul was saying. And there's a huge huge difference. Uh, If the emphasis is on the one believing, if the emphasis is on the one who's doing the believing, then the responsibility of salvation therefore lies on the believer. And the quality and the quantity of that belief. Okay? All right means salvation's up to you. Hanging on to salvation is up to you. Completing salvation is up to you. If the emphasis is on the believer, if it's the believer's responsibility to, to have quality and quantity of faith satisfactory to God over a span of time in order to end up on the right end at the right time, then the emphasis is on the believer. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So is that what Paul is saying? If it is, then he's argued with himself significantly throughout Scripture, right? Um, So to take this kind of theological position, I think would be, well, I know would be significant error. It's not effective exegesis. So when in doubt, you need to ask yourself, 
questions about what, what you're studying. Number one, what is the context of what's being said? What is the context and what is being said? And then secondly, what else has been said on this matter in Scripture that I could refer to? What else has been said about this particular subject matter that I can refer to? All right? Let's just use an example. I think that will be helpful to you. That example would be Romans 10, verse 9. It has to do with faith and salvation, which is the subject matter basically here that Paul is referring to. We're going to get to the resurrection, but hang on to you. I just want to take a little rabbit chase here. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord, or as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, Not a whole lot of argument there. If you believe something, the substance of what what he's talking about here, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, and that God's raised him from the dead, that that is not a historical Jesus, but an alive Jesus, right? If you believe that, you will be saved. All right. Now, Paul didn't say that that salvation was subject to the amount of faith or the quality of it in terms of how you live it out, did he? Didn't say that. He said, if you believe, then. If, then. Cause, result. Okay? So the emphasis is fully placed upon the subject of what is believed in, not not the believer. Okay? Now then. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. One of my favorite series of verses here. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And this is talking about who we were before we had faith in Christ, before we were saved. If, excuse me, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace... You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Notice the tenses of these verses. These these are done deals, right? Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? For by grace you have been saved through faith and what? Not of yourselves. Now go back. If if Paul said that this, back here in 1 Corinthians 15, if it had something to do with myself, he's just argued against himself. Correct? Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Okay, so are we agreed That what Paul said here, when he says, if you have believed in vain, that he's not talking about the quality or quantity of your faith that brings about the vanity of it. It has everything to do with the substance. If you're not believing in the right thing, all right, then your faith is pitied. 
futile, and so forth. All right. So this then brings us to the second inference concerning this verse and how to interpret Scripture. And the right way, I believe. And that is talking about the substance of our faith. Finding out what the substance of our faith is. What really brings validity to what I believe in. It's the substance. Uh, If, when I turn the key to the car and it fires, there's lots of things that happen. Electricity sparks, it, uh, the engine spins, the, uh, if you have uh, spark plugs rather than glow plugs, the spark plugs are shooting out electricity, fire, and it, it catches that, the gas, gaseous vapor from the gas, an, an explosion occurs, and, and it, it pumps the cylinders up and down and produces power, right? I didn't describe it all that well, but you get the idea. Okay. Now, when I turn that, because I have lots of experience with cars, when I turn that key, I fully expect that car to do that. And it's not that I'm an expert on cars. I just know that if I turn it, it's going to start up. Now, there's times it hasn't. But that's, let's leave that out, out of the equation. That Generally, that's what happens. I have faith that when I turn the key, it's going to fire up. All right. And then I'm going to be on my way. The substance is accurate. When I turn the key, it's going to do something. That's what it's designed to do, right? So faith in Christ, the substance of Christ, is absolutely valid to bring us to a place of salvation because it's promised to us by God himself. There's no other way to salvation except through Christ. No other way. Now then, what's really, really interesting is for the Lordship of Christ to be valid to us, there was the necessity of the resurrection. Had Jesus not been raised from the dead, we would have no hope. Everything, everything rests on the resurrection. Everything. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are in trouble. Big trouble. Right? Right? Buddha wasn't raised from the dead. Muhammad hasn't been raised from the dead. All the marvelous prophets and characters of history and heroes, perhaps, in many, many ways weren't raised from the dead. Jesus was. That's what sets him apart. Many performed very unusual events. Were they miraculous? I don't know about that. But, but Jesus could even stand out in some regard from in, that, in that way. But it's the resurrection that makes him substantive in all aspects to bring us to a place of salvation, both permanent and secure. Right? All right. But let's just for a moment... On Easter Sunday, assume Jesus was not raised from the dead. Because Paul did that here in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at what that result would be. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, verse 14, Paul says, our preaching would be useless. I'd say amen if I were you. <laughs> There's a lot of preaching that's useless anyway. But uh, <laughs> There we go. All right. But in all aspects, preaching would be useless. All right? With or without the, uh, uh, with the, without the resurrection, there is no hope. Therefore, uh, what do we have to say? Look at verse uh, 14, the second part of that. He said, not only is our preaching useless, but faithless, faith is useless. Right? The reason why it is, because there's nothing to believe in. There's no substance. We have a hero, we have somebody that was remarkable in life, but it takes the resurrection to set him apart from all. A living Lord, a living Savior. Number three, verse 15. We'd be false witnesses about God. 
we'd be saying things about him that wouldn't be true. If Jesus is not raised from the dead. All right, so we'd be lying to ourselves and we'd be lying to others. Verse 17, your faith would be futile. And Paul says, you'd still be in your sins. Now, this is a fun one. Because the contrary uh, helps us as a finished work of Christ's church and people understand again how incredibly real it is that everything has been finished on our behalf. You know, we're, we're not talking about doing our best once we uh, do our best for the master and somehow hoping to survive till the end. He says, Paul says here, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Well, how tragic that would be. And yet Christians who believe in the resurrection still believe they're in their sins. I did for the longest time. Still in your sins. And so we keep our short, uh, we keep our, our, our sin list short. Because what should happen if I get surprised and I got to quickly uh, get my sins repented up to date and all of a sudden I'm out of here? You know, I, I, I got to make sure that I, I got my ducks in order. And, but I can't ever keep them in order. I can't keep the list short enough. You know, because what about the sins of omission? The ones I'm not even aware of. That's still sin. How, how am I going to deal with that? You know, there's, there's no logic. There's no logic if you believe in the resurrection to believe you're still in your sins. Because it's just simply not true. All right? Wow. Jesus made sure that our hope would have substance and permanency. A saint who sins is not a sinner by nature or by biblical definition. All right? He's not. Or she is not. And the Father doesn't see you that way. Um, a Christian is no longer in their sins. Because in their sins identifies you to ownership. In their sins. That's, that's an ownership. It's a nature issue that Paul is referring to. You're no longer in your sins. You're no longer owned by sin. You no longer uh, have that sin nature that's been dealt with once and for all. You can sin. That's not an excuse to sin. You can sin and it not injure the relationship you have with God. Because that was based on the finished work of Christ. And His resurrection secures that once and for all. Now, I love what, uh, what Pastor Clark has said. He says, the greatest management of sin is love. You know, not behavior, not my, not my attempts to somehow please God, but love knowing I am, I'm already a pleasure to Him. That's the greatest, greatest uh, combat to sinful behavior, right? Number five, Paul says, uh, if Christ is not raised from the dead, the dead in Christ are lost. Verse 18, they, they have no hope and they're lost, never to be recovered by God's grace. In other words, that death is the end because there is no resurrection. It, it has the final say. If Christ is not raised from the dead, sorry, your dead, dead loved ones are dead, gone. They have no hope. Verse 19, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why? Because without the resurrection as a basis or substance of our faith, we've been duped, we've been deceived, and we've misplaced our faith and hope in Christ. How pitied are we? All right? Boy, I'm sure glad 
<laughs> he moved on. First Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. To be in Adam once again, has that nature issue, that ownership issue. To be an Adam means to be in his nature, out of his loins, uh, participant of his DNA. All right? To be in Christ means also ownership and nature. It means to be out of his loins, out of his DNA. And the scripture uses the word sperma, the sperma of God, when it refers to the children of God, the actual DNA of God. That's pretty neat. You really are a child of God. Really, really, really are. Not just associated with Him because you behave well, but you carry His genes. Literally. That's pretty neat. I mean, that, and that's permanent. You don't change that. You don't change that DNA, right? And He's the only one that could, could have done that, and He did do it. Wow. All right. Now. All this was just meant to be short, so I don't have much. But 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and following are the, are the closing comments. We'll let Paul have them on the subject matter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam. By the way, who's that? The last Adam, Jesus, became... A life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, therefore earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. In other words, you carry the same nature, right? As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. The sperm of God. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also bear the image of the heavenly. It's identity. It's reality. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Paul answers that. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Listen, the resurrection occurred. You can study that on your own, but the, the evidences of that 
uh, Josh McDowell have written on, on that kind of thing and given all the evidences, taking consideration all the prophecies of the Old Testament that move toward this thing and all that Jesus fulfilled. It is, you can't calculate the odds of how to, yeah, you could. It'd be the same way as calculating how, um, how everything we have came out of ooze. Space ooze. Where did the ooze come from? You know, where did, where did all the ingredients come from that? It's the same odds. If you just back it up millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and billions and trillions and trillions of years, somehow there might be some kind of odd back over here where something might have happened. That's, that's the only way these guys can come up with the possibilities of, of that kind of nonsense. But what Christ has done for us is not only incredibly glorious... It is permanent. It's a done deal for all who believe. It's not how well you believe that being interpreted as how you live out your faith. That's important, isn't it? But that's not what designates, that's not what identifies your salvation. It's not what identifies who you are. All right? But, um, so it's all done. Jesus did it, complete, once and for all, finished. It's done. And when he said it's finished, he meant it. On the cross. He meant it. And the power of God, when it ushered him out of the grave, oh, that picture to me is the most glorious thing. Um, there's a fellow by the name of Paul Bilheimer. Anybody ever heard of him as an author? Uh, he wrote about um, a subject matter I haven't thought much about. I might have already said that to you before, talked to you before, uh, maybe a year or so ago. We talked about when Jesus was crucified. All the anger and all the requirements of the law were placed fully upon him, right? He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous God of Christ. He took all the penalty, all of it, upon himself, all of it. Couldn't take just most of it. Had to take all of it. And what is the penalty of sin? Separation from the Father. Yeah. The, 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 the damned aspects of, of a sentence to a separation from God for what all that means, which in our interpretation means the hellish, hellish existence, right? Um, Jesus himself went into that netherland of, of torment. And, um, and the time frame is difficult to know. We know there were three earthly days, but what does that mean in terms of time, which time is not identified? I don't, I don't know what that looks like. But nevertheless, he suffered completely, completely for you and for me. I suspect that what happened prior to the crucifixion and in the death itself was only the beginning of his suffering. Only the beginning. But there was a moment in time when the Father says, that's enough. I find him innocent. And Jesus was then given resurrection life. And the resurrection life began right there in that, that dungeon. And out he comes with the keys of death and hell, you know, attached to him. And those dungeon doors knocked down once and for all. Jesus coming out absolutely victorious and forever he will be. And forever we will be. Because we're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ, holy and pure before him. In love. How incredible is that? It's the resurrection that made the difference. It's what proved him to be Lord. Amen. Amen.
Let's pray. Mike, in the back. Pray for us. Close this out, please. Amen. Thank you. God bless. Remember what the earthly, the early Christians used to say. One would say he is risen. What would the other say? He's risen indeed. Amen.